Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, it's Annie here and uh, everybody is away at the moment except for me. I am live, but... uh, They'll all be back soon and uh, you'll be happy to know that this is the uh, first week back for This Is The Week That Was. Kevin Healy, 8.20, he'll be back and we hopefully will get a a chat with uh, Marcus Harrington from uh, Rank and File at about 8 o'clock. So 8 o'clock, a bit of uh, Rank and File information and uh, after that we, we will be able to proceed with This Is The Week That Was with Kevin Healy. Uh, today we're going to... Uh, hear from another filmmaker from Transition Film Festival that's uh, coming up, Transition Film Festival, which is a festival of ideas uh, working towards a positive future, 18th of February to the 3rd of March, which is uh, going to be shown at, the films are going to be shown at the Nova in uh, Carlton. Today we're going to be uh, talking to Lisa Heenan and Isabella Doherty. Uh, Isabella is actually Lisa's daughter, a filmmaker. Uh, uh, They've made a film called Polyface and it's about sustainable farming. Now, it's an incredibly popular film. It was... uh, uh, scheduled to... It is going to be shown at 2.30 on uh, the... uh, uh, to 2.30 on, let's see, oh, which day? <laughs> Isn't it funny? I've written everything else about it, but I've forgotten to write down which day it's on. But I will find out. But anyway, they've had it's so popular, they've uh, had to uh, do another screening. So uh, there's a morning screening as well as an afternoon screening. But I'll give you more details about it after you hear the little chat I had with Lisa Heenan and her daughter Isabella Doherty. Now, Isabella is, is actually uh, gadding about the world. She's actually in New Zealand at a festival uh, with her partner and so uh, sh- her quality of sound is a little bit down because it's by phone but uh, overall it's a nice little conversation about why people need to make uh, a film about sustainable uh, farming and uh, how farming doesn't have to be part of the problem, it can be part of the solution to a sustainable world. Um, I'll just uh, tell you what else we've got on uh, after uh We've had This Is The Week That Was. We're going to have a chat with uh, Vince Emanuel. Now, Vince Emanuel is a former soldier, American soldier, who's now turned to become an activist commentator. And he's going to give us a bit of an American look 
at what's going on in uh, the American primaries. Uh, you'll be aware that Iowa has uh, the first of the uh, uh, voting um, sections of uh, leading up to the choice of Democrat and uh, Republican uh, candidates for the upcoming 2016 presidential election has caused a variety of uh, waves because things haven't turned out exactly as people have expected. So uh, we're going to talk to uh, Vince to get an inside run on uh, what he thinks is the reason for uh, Bernie Sanders' uh, getting an almost dead heat with Hillary Clinton in the Democrat camp and that uh, Cruz trumping Trump on the Republican side. But first off, as I said, we're going to hear from Lisa Heenan and Isabella Doherty about Polyface, which is a a film that's showing at the Transition Film Festival about sustainable farming. We've worked in the regenerative agriculture arena for over 20 years. My husband is a farm designer. What's a farm designer? Well, you have an architect who designs your home and he designs a farm. So if you've got a piece of land, he will say the best spot to put the dam, the best spot to put the house, what the soil uh, structure's like, you know, what, what work it needs, what are good crops or good fruit trees for the area. So Darren, one of Darren's famous quotes is, the climate of the mind is the hardest thing to change. And we found, especially with farmers that are, you know, using conventional sort of farming methods, um, they're sort of caught on this drug trap of using a lot of chemicals. So we thought if we made a film, we could inspire the consumer to become more conscious and then the consumer would be sort of demanding, you know, with the product that they want. You found this farm in Virginia in America with the man that he calls himself the lunatic farmer. He called him, he's written about eight books. He's, you know, his dad was very, very clever and his dad taught him a lot of things. Um, and he went to his first sort of big presentation at an ag sort of farm day. And they said, oh, what do you want to be, um, what title shall we give you? And he sort of, you know, off the cuff just said, oh, Joel Salatin, lunatic farmer, because he had got a lot of backlash from the local um, farmers in the area because he was doing everything different. You know, he wasn't using any chemicals. He was moving his cows all the time. He had, you know, chickens going behind the cows. So they all thought he was crazy. Isabel, uh, you uh, were part of the family packing up and going over to Virginia to check out Polyface. Well, I was 18 when we started production and I was living in London at the time. So we, when we first went over there for a 10-day trip to sort of get the bulk of the footage and gain a perspective on what was happening at the farm and what we could use and what we could utilise. Um, and then I ended up going back and forth, um, I think, around seven times over the three-year period that we were filming. When we started doing the film, Isabella was already an award-winning filmmaker she won her first award at 16 and then her next award at 17 wow so um Isabella is the co-director and she's also the DOP so she took on that role she's you know very talented and very skilled with cameras as a photographer and as a filmmaker so this is a, a combination of family skills isn't it Isabella with her film skills 
uh, Darren with his uh, understanding of the future of farming and uh, and I guess you bring it all together with your intensity regarding uh, the need for a positive future. Well, I grew up in a, I'm the youngest of 12 children and my mother um, taught us from a very young age to be grateful for our health, for fresh air, for... You know, we always had chickens in the backyard. We always had vegetables growing and herbs growing. And my mum really is my hero and my inspiration because she taught us all to love nature and appreciate the magic of nature and that nature is in a state of regeneration. Nature wants to flourish. It wants to be as healthy as it can be. But as humans, we often get in the way of what Mother Nature wants. And and that's what Darren says, you know, Gaia is our first client. When he, whenever he's working with anyone, he says, I will listen to you, but I will guy as my first client, so I'll tell you what I think is best for Mother Earth. Well, uh, this film, of course, is part of the Transition Film Festival, which is a festival of ideas, and it's about positive futures. And I, and I absolutely was taken uh, by that statement. Uh, ec- economic development does not mean sacrificing the environment, but I'm sure the majority of people believe that that is the truth, that you must sacrifice the environment in order to get a result. And it's, it's very, very clearly not the case, though. So you can have farms that are incredibly lucrative and working with regeneration in mind. And you can also source locally. Like, we're on our way to a um, festival right now where we're um, running a cafe and we're sourcing completely local and mostly organic produce and we're selling it all at normal prices that you would for conventional food. It's about going the little the extra mile and actually, you know, seeking out these people who are um, having the earth as their main priority. Yeah, I mean, I say people are scared of being inconvenienced. They like to go to one supermarket and get everything. You know, it doesn't matter that they're buying crap that, that's got no nutrient value. A lot of people don't think about that or don't care about that. But as people get sick and more and more people are getting sicker and more and more people are looking to use their food as a medicine, which, you know, Socrates said it, let food be their medicine and medicine be their food. And, I mean, I think, you know, if we go back to eating local, eating in season, supporting local producers who have the health of the planet and all of its inhabitants as their main priority... Well, let's look at that. Uh, what you've got here is an example in Polyface, which you call probably the best farm in the world. <laughs> and uh, and he, that's what they do. They actually educate people uh, about how you can live this way. But it is running parallel to a consumer system, an economic system, which is actually depriving people of their health. So they're educating people into processed foods and to not not to be frightened of being inconvenienced. Now, if you look at Polyface, for example, it says it is possible to care for the land, not have the outrageous costs for things like chemicals that are required in the mainstream kind of farm. You don't need to be cruel to animals to vet, get it. Vet bills, you know. Yeah. I know one farmer who who um, got off the chemical drug trip, he was saving $60,000 a year in vet bills. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, plus you've got... When you think about that, that's the average person's wage and that's how much people are spending just on vet bills. It's pretty mind-blowing. 
Yeah, well, that's all, it's obviously uh, maintaining uh, large corporations' um, profit margins. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, big pharma, big food, big ag, they all pat each other on the back. People say, How, don't you get depressed because you know so much about what's happening in agriculture and food. And I say no because we see what is happening all over the world. All the amazing people that we hang out with all over the world are like us. They are so committed. They're so driven to being a part of saving humanity and regenerating the planet. And the stories are just, you know, so numerous and so beautiful. And it's, it's happening. It's happening right now. Now, the interesting thing is that there's a certain level of simplicity in it too. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot of hard work involved. It's labour-intensive, which you'd have to say has to be good for uh, reducing unemployment and giving people direction and a sense of connection and community. These are absolutely important elements, yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, Australia's now, some of the dairy farmers in Australia are going to robotic, and New Zealand, they're going to robotic dairies. Why, when we have got so many people unemployed, why are we taking away jobs that robots can do? I mean, it's all about we've lost connection to the earth. I mean, one of my theories is that we've lost the barefoot connection to the actual earth. You know, you look at tribal communities, they sing, they dance, they're barefoot. They're so connected to to Mother Earth and the rhythms and the energy of the the earth, whereas we're in shoes all the time, we're, you know, fast-paced, you know, everyone's, you know, double-income families, high stress, you know, kids are on anti-anxiety tablets, you know, preschool. I mean, we need, we need to step back and get off that, that crazy treadmill. And exactly as you said, this beautiful way of farming, farming can be a legitimate career choice, but it also is a beautiful gift back to the community. Also, the level of intelligence that's implied and creativity that goes into keeping Polyface into a an ongoing and structured sort of environment for, for an ever-increasing uh, family. The uh, Celadons are a, a growing family. And it should be pointed out that uh, the farm that y- you talk about when it comes to polyface doesn't exclude animals or the harvesting of animals. It's not that sort of farm. The animals and the land and the what you call vertically integrated enterprises, they're not uh, hippies. They're quite no. mainstream, actually. No. I, I, you Absolutely know. not. Yeah. They're, they're in it to make money. When I mean, at, And especially like one quote that always stood out for me from Daniel, who's the son um, who now manages the farm, is he, like, as Lisa said, they are in it. It's a lucrative business. They, you know, have 20 different workers. It's, it's um, quite an amazing enterprise. But what he said to, to me once was you know, the reason why... I love this so much is because I have access to so many different roles. There's so much creativity involved in my job. You know, one day I'm a mechanic, one day I'm a carpenter. You know, I'm a I'm a vet. I'm a like an, yeah, like an animal wrangler. You know, there's so many different careers within the one role that he has as a farmer. So he's always interested and excited in what the next day is going to bring, which is why I think a lot of young people now um, because. It's been said numerous times that our generation is going to have, you know, five, six career changes because the millennials are, um, have, you know, really fast attention spans and we need to be on our toes all the time. It's, farming is such a 
great way for people to get their release and to feel like they're consistently being fulfilled by different roles and ideas. And I think farmers are inherently create, very, very, very creative. And I think Australian farmers in particular are probably the, the most creative when you look at what's come out of Australia. You know, the different farming, you know, permaculture and key line design and um, land care and all these different things that have started in Australia. It's because we have drought and we have floods and we have to be creative. But what happens with bureaucracy and with government regulations that aren't appropriately size-scaled to farmers is that farmers lose that creativity because the regulations, you know, stop them from doing what they want to do. So we've got this ever-growing um, group of people that want access to nutritious local produce and then we have the bureaucrats who are saying, well, no, you can't, you know, slaughter your chickens on the farm because, you know, that's not... Hygienic. Hygienic. When, you know, the chickens that you buy in supermarkets are getting bathed in chlorine. Well, I don't even want to swim in a pool with chlorine. I definitely don't want to eat a chicken that's been washed in chlorine. So, you know, we So are you arguing that there needs to be a re-evaluation of systems? But also there's another thing that's going on is that uh, many farms in Australia are actually incredibly enormous. Yes. They're They're not family farms as people would imagine them to be. But there is an ever-growing group of um, Epicurean, which is a mixture of ethical and Epicurean, you know, smaller farmers that are just outside the cities, you know. There's an ever-growing number and they want to produce. They want to be creative. They want to do salamis. They want to do, you know, process their chickens on the farm because that's the best place for an animal to die is on the place that where it lived. But also there's the market too that's being educated to buy locally. Exactly. So we've got the consumers wanting it. We've got the, these great group of, you know, inspired people who want to be these smaller entrepreneurial farmers. And then we have the government, you know, regulations and then the bureaucracy saying, well, you know, all of our regulations are based on a thousand, you know, dairy farm so you know, so, so it, their, their regulations and their vision is based on uh, a um, much an automated capitalistic model. Well, it's factory farming. Ma- that's factory what, yeah. farming. That's what they're enormous, yeah. enormous conventional farms that are run by corporations or owned partly by corporations. That's what they're basing all of their regulations off, and that's why we have um, the Australian um, Food Sovereignty Alliance. Um, started to help all of these smaller producers um, actually see their ability to fight for what they want to produce, basically, and do it in a way that's harmonious with the environment. So in America, there's this, there's the American Legal Defence Fund. So, you know, a farmer like Joel pays one fee a year and he can use them as many times as he wants through the year. And so we had a rally this time last year that Joel and Costa both spoke at um, where we had a five, we had 500 people at the Collingwood Town Hall and we had a lot of local farmers and we were talking about the fact that, you know, people want access to this local produce. How about we work with PrimeSafe, who is the governing body? Um, how about they work with with the farmers, how about they come out and see, you know, what they're doing and listen to the consumers and that's still an ongoing process. We've just heard recently that, you know, one of our friends is having more trouble. Um, 
there's an air of bullying in that organisation and we have offered to do workshops with them. So we're hoping that that's going to happen because it's an ever-growing... Because there's a full circle, isn't it, as you said earlier, that actually people are becoming sick. We're a sick society and unless we actually uh, roll back and start to actually live in a sustainable fashion, which it is possible to do. This is what Polyface, the film, is actually about. It is. It is. I mean, my mum's nearly 93 and she says that there's not much common sense. Common sense isn't very common anymore. We need to go back to common sense. We need to go back to... Little villages, you know, like we used to live, little villages, eating locally, eating in season. And it is very, very possible. And incredibly enjoyable as well. People, you know, don't realise how uh, much bliss it brings living a simplistic lifestyle where you just don't have to worry about buying 5,000 ingredients. You just survive off a few that are in season and you, you know, get tomatoes in summer and then you bottle them for winter. You know, it's... There's so much joy in having great produce and not having to worry about, you know, walking up and down supermarket aisles, wondering what you're going to eat for dinner. It's just back to simplicity. I mean, it, it seems uh, extraordinary to people that it's possible to actually actually do a mind shift and to actually start working on the project of basically saving uh, people and the planet and uh, in a way that uh, they can actually feed themselves without uh, without there being factory farms because actually that's the argument the argument is that we'll go into famine if we don't actually have factory farms well the reality is i don't know the statistics in australia but we've just been in america so i've got the statistics for america for america 90 million acres of lawn oh 97 million acres of recreational horse um pasture this is before we even look at farming land. So anyone who says we haven't got enough land to farm, to feed people, that's a lie. It's not true. And if tomorrow everyone said we're only buying local, of course we wouldn't have enough food to feed everyone. It, it's a process that we need to to work into. But if people start supporting local producers now, then they'll be encouraged to keep going. We don't want farmers to keep walking off their farms. We don't want people to be deterred from farming. So don't wait till you get sick. Do it now. And also the thing that was really uh, extraordinary and what people really should go and see Polyface for, the film, is the this notion, as I was saying before, that it debunks the notion that we need to destroy and sacrifice the environment in order to have economic development. This is absolutely key. And, you know, if you, if you are a person who's about community, that money is staying in your community. You are helping to regenerate your local economy too because the Salatons only um, supply food within a three-hour food shed of their farm. So they have 5,000 families, cafes and restaurants and they deliver to those drop-off points. So if you want to regenerate your local community, then start, perfect way. start buying local. But I'll tell you something else, and I threatened that we were going to stop, but I can re-edit this. Uh, that I found fascinating was that their, their commitment to the community goes beyond their local because they actually invite people to come and work with them and they develop skills. And those younger people or whoever who have ambition to 
run their own little farms, uh, then go out and do so. This is a movement, isn't it? It's definitely a movement and it's just getting stronger and stronger. I mean, we travel all over the world all the time. We're just about to go off on a, a eight-month tour. Darren's doing 12, 10-day workshops around the world and I'm taking the film to film festivals and presenting it. And, you know, we reach thousands and thousands of people with our workshops because it's an ever-growing movement. And you're right, the Sullitans um, are totally committed to giving back I mean, I call it the global village because we've got so many friends who are like family members now around the world. So to me, it's a global village. And, you know, like us, we're committed to our global village. Just because we're thousands of miles away doesn't mean that we're not connected. We are all connected. We're on this earth together. And every day we make choices who we're supporting. So every day we can actually make positive choices to support people that are helping to regenerate the planet. Hello, this is Archie Roach and you're listening to Good Music on 855 AM on 3CR. That's right, you are. You're on 3CR. This is Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And we were just chatting with uh, Isabella Doherty and Lisa Heenan, who were the creators or part of the creation team of Polyface, the movie, which I've threatened to tell you the uh, date that it's being shown at the uh, Transition Film Festival, which is uh, starting on the 18th of February and going to the 3rd of March. It's on Saturday the 20th of February at the Nova. And it was it's scheduled to the first uh, session was uh, was scheduled at 2.30pm with a Q&A from the... Uh, uh, filmmakers, uh, it was uh, booked out. But uh, if you want to go, you can go to the earlier session, which has uh, been created at 10.30am, so that uh, you can see Polyface, a practical uh, change to sustainability, Saturday the 20th of February. There are other other screenings, actually, uh, which may be of interest to people. One's at uh, the Bendigo uh, premiere at on uh, 19th to the 21st of February at the Star Cinema and also at Castle Main, which is on the 27th of February at the Theatre Royal. Now, it's that's at the 30th, uh, 30 Hargrave Street, Castle Main, uh, in well, we all know Victoria, but Castlemaine is where Polyface was made with the uh, Regrarians Limited. That's the name of the company that made the film team, residing there over 2015 and working closely with the Castlemaine-based editor Bergen O'Brien, along with Meldon-based composer and sound editor Michael De Elzen. So. Uh, uh, the Polyface producer and co-director Lisa Heenan will be attending the both screenings in Castlemaine for a post-film Q&A and there is also going to be a local food and wine festival between the screenings featuring local wine and food producers. That's the 27th of February. Uh, you're on uh, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. Now I've got a little giveaway if uh, you are interested in a uh, double pass to the uh, death of the American Dream. We spoke to uh, the uh, director of the death of the American Dream last week. Uh, The uh, film is probably the very last uh, extended uh, conversation with Noam Chomsky, who is now 87. And uh, it's a great film, The Death of the American Dream. It's on February the 24th at 8 
45 as part of the Transmission Film Festival. So that's February the 24th at 8.45 at the Nova. And uh, it's uh, if I've got two, uh, a double pass. So if you're interested in that, you can uh, ring us on 94198377 after the show and uh, you may be the recipient of said double pass. How about that? Let's go to Precious Things by Mia Dyson. book by Elena and Bruce MacDonald stars our beloved comrade Bill Della as the protagonist in a journey that stems from Ballarat to Humpty Doo and features all the lefty issues that were dear to Bill's big heart. 3CR has a few precious copies of this beautiful book for sale for $20 plus $5 postage. All proceeds will go to the Solidarity Breakfast Program's Radiothon Fund. You can buy it online at the 3CR shop. Go to the 3CR website 3cr.org.au or pick up your copy at the station. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie on 3CR 855 on your AM dial, of course streaming and also podcast. Now, uh, coming up, uh, as I said, February the 20th, you could go and see Polyface at uh, the Transmission Film Festival and you could have a very busy weekend on February the 21st. Kurunduk, we will show the country, which is uh, uh, La Mama Mobile. Kurunduk, we will show the country, was uh, first being first shown at La Mama uh, last year, late last year. And it's a, a program that's... Uh, it uses um, is based on the original production by uh, Rachel Mazza. This is the one that's uh, going to be shown on February the twenty first, and it's uh, uh, it incorporates part of the Minutes of Evidence project and Wanduna State Aboriginal Corporation um, uh, information from the uh, historic uh, look into the. Uh, uh, it, 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 sorry, it, it brings the voices back to life through a verbatim reading and live performance of the testimonials before the Kurunduk Parliamentary Inquiry uh, in the early part of the 20th, uh, late 19th century. It was actually in uh, 1881 the people of Kurunduk Aboriginal Station took on the board for the protection of Aborigines in a fight for justice, dignity and self-determination. And this particular performance is going to be on country, which is the thing that's so important. I'm sorry, I, it's all a bit gabbly really, but uh, it's I actually saw the performance of the piece at La Mama and it's absolutely uh, vital uh, to um, an understanding of the interaction between Aboriginal peoples in Victoria and the state. And I'm assuming this was uh, repeated over and over again. But Kurunduk was uh, a self-sustaining uh, farm uh, community and uh, it uh, was very successful. 
but uh, it was dismantled because uh, they couldn't be, they weren't allowed to be successful effectively. And uh, it was, it shows this particular performance from the, uh, these uh, testimonials from the actual, uh, um, actual inquiry that uh, was made uh, 134 years ago. Uh, is quite extraordinary. Anyway, it, uh, it's uh, got uh, it's it tells the story is um, actually uh, uh, being performed by Uncle Jack Charles uh, with uh, Jim Daly, Sid Brisbane, Glenn Shear, David Patterson, Greg Fryer, Pauline Wyman, Peter Finlay, and Liz Jones. And uh, as I said, it's going to be performed on country, which is extraordinary, on country performance at Kurundook. It's called Kurundook, We Will Show the Country. Uh, it's February the 21st. Um, it's, uh, all the proceeds will, uh, it's $25 full price and $18 concession, and all proceeds will go to the maintenance of the Kurundook pro- property because, of course, the fight goes on. Uh, 19th, nine, sorry, it's, Located at 19 Barrack Lane, which of course is referring to William Barrack, the famous and uh, important Aboriginal uh, fighter for uh, justice, dignity and self-determination. 19 Barrack Lane, Hillsville, and it's a Starts the gates are open at five pm. The performance is going to be at six thirty pm. If uh, you want to know more about it, then you probably should be going to the website, the Mama website, and uh, you can find out more about this extraordinary on-country performance, which is going to be on February the twenty-first. Now, uh, I was uh, hoping to roust. Uh, young Marcus Harrington, who's uh, flitted off to Brisbane. Uh, the reason for why it, uh, I wanted to talk to Marcus was because Marcus was the delegate for the National Union of Workers in uh, 2000, two, 2012, and uh, he spent uh, uh, all year going off and attended all of the Victorian opposition members of the Australian Labor Party, as it was then, the opposition members, they're now government in Victoria, and the Victorian Trades Hall affiliates. And he campaigned for the Labor Party to introduce legislation regulating the labor hire industry uh, should that party be returned to government in the state of Victoria in 2014. Now, the uh, it was absolutely critical for the stability of Australian jobs uh, that uh, an inquiry and regulation of labour hire industry is undertaken. And it's extraordinary that it's not the case. You uh, Anyway, on the... Uh, this, uh, he... he um, said that um, when he went to all these different uh, places uh, at this particular meeting, he was given a, a, an assurance by the now Premier Daniel Andrews and their Broadmeadows MP Frank Maguire and Tim Pallas that, they, uh, that this legislation would be introduced in Victoria uh, if uh, the Victorian Labor was to win the 20, to, uh, 
2014 election. Now it's actually come to pass. This inquiry is going to start in Melbourne on Monday the 8th to Wednesday the 10th. That's the upcoming Monday, February 2016. It's going to be at the Monash University Conference Centre, Level 7, 30th, 30 Collins Street, Melbourne. That's on Monday, going to Wednesday the 10th of February, Monash University Conference Centre, Level 7, 30 Collins Street, Melbourne. So all that work that delegates like Marcus Harrington put in leading up to the 2014 election has finally borne some fruit. The inquiry's term of reference is going to include examining the social impact of insecure work and assessing if the current legal framework meets the needs of Victorian labour hire workers. This may lead to consideration of options such as a licensing system enabling accredited labour hire agencies to provide third-party labour. Now, you've got to realise that uh, big business is using labour hire agencies to give an arm's length approach to employment. So it is one of the arms of... uh, casualising the Australian workforce and also uh, shirking ethical responsibility and legal responsibilities for wages and conditions. Now, the inquiry is keen to hear the experiences and views of labour hire workers as the inquiry will look at the social impact of insecure work, contributions from family and friends of labour hire workers us also encouraged. As I said, uh, it starts on Monday the 8th of February, goes to Wednesday the 10th of February 2016 in Melbourne Monash University Conference Centre, Level 7, 30 Collins Street, Melbourne. And uh, I would have liked to have had Marcus tell you all this because Marcus deserves a pat on the back. new illustrated book by Alina and Bruce MacDonald stars our beloved comrade Bill Della as the protagonist in a journey that stems from Ballarat to Humpty Doo and features all the lefty issues that were dear to Bill's big heart. 3CR has a few precious copies of this beautiful book for sale for $20 plus $5 postage. All proceeds will go to the Solidarity Breakfast Program's Radiothon Fund. You can buy it online at the 3CR shop. Go to the 3CR website... 3cr.org.au or pick up your copy at the station. The uh, biggest uh, issue that was appearing in uh, all over the uh, media this week and uh, was uh, unable to be uh, shirked and covered and sidelined by... uh, Things like uh, Turnbull going off and shaking hands with homeless people in an orchestrated affair uh, in um, earlier part of the week and appearing on uh, most newspaper front pages. Our man in Canberra went off to uh, say hello to the, the homeless. I'm not sure if it's going to mean anything. We know that uh, Parliament has started 
and uh, we've got uh, a, a camp across from the uh, front door of uh, Parliament House in Canberra where uh, people from the MV Portland and uh, now the CSL Melbourne uh, MUA members who uh, have lost their jobs from uh, the local uh, shipping routes around Australia, which are now being in the process of being deregulated by uh, special licences that are being given out by the uh, federal government, special licences to de um, dismantle Australia's uh, long-held um, arrangements for uh, employment along the uh, local uh, shipping lanes. But the thing that couldn't get off the pages was the pictures of little babies, that refugee babies, that uh, have been born in Australia but are being uh, denied citizenship rights and being sent back to Nauru. Now, there was a snap action in Melbourne and in other parts of the country, a uh, refugee action collective called Snap uh, Actions to... Uh, Stop uh, to raise concerns about the Immigration Minister Peter Duck, Dutton's intention to send 260 people, people back to 267 people back to Nauru, including women who have been sexually assaulted, over 80 children and 41 babies, 32 of which have been born in Australia. All are terrified of being sent back to Nauru where they have faced sexual, mental and physical harm. Now, uh, there has been confirmation that the High Court has decided that offshore detention on Nauru uh, is actually legal, uh, which, uh, of course, is uh, increasingly concerning to uh, activists and supporters of the refugees. The uh, fight continues it uh, will not be silenced, despite the notion that uh, refugees, this small, in fact relatively small amount of people that are cost costing the Australian taxpayers huge amounts of money in order to uh, ensure that they will not have any hope of becoming Australian citizens. Now, if you're interested in finding out more about this issue, you should go to the ASRC uh, uh, the Australian uh, the ASRC uh, website or the Refugee Action Collective's website and you'll be able to involve yourself in future uh, rallies and uh, other activities to try and uh, raise awareness of this destructive process that's going on at the heart of uh, Australian politics. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with a record hold my hand back One of the shadiest of these is the Liberals.
an outspoken group on many subjects. <clears throat> Ten degrees to the left of center in good times. Ten degrees to the right of center if it affects them personally. So here then is a lesson in safe logic. I cried when they shot Medgar Evers. Tears ran down my spine. And I cried when they shot Mr. Kennedy. As though I'd lost a father of mine. But Malcolm X got what was coming. He got what he asked for this time. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. Get it? <laughs> I go to civil rights rally and I put down the old DAR. DAR, that's the dikes of the American Revolution. <laughs> I love Harry and Sidney and Sammy. I hope every colored boy becomes a star. But don't talk about revolution That's going a little bit too far So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal This is Irene Bolger, former secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition calls on both federal and state governments. These governments must take up proposals to fast-track job creation. They must provide decent unemployment income support payments. They must provide publicly funded training delivered in culturally appropriate ways. And they must provide one-stop mental health support services. Father Bob Maguire will launch the statement on the steps of Parliament House Wednesday, 24th of February from 11am. Bring your friends and stand with Fair Go for Pensioners and with unemployed Victorians. Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition Incorporated is a 3CR supporter. have a teenager aged between 12 and 15? The University of Melbourne invites parents to take part in an Australian-wide study called Training for Parents of Teenagers, or TEAPOT. The study aims to teach parents to recognise and respond to mental health problems in teenagers and first aid injuries through a free two-day course in either Youth Mental Health First Aid or Australian Red Cross First Aid. We call it TEAPOT. Please go to tpot.net.au to find out more. 
weak solidarity bricky team lister when well weeks and we'll do a bit of uncoordinated meandering across those weeks for instance a blast from the past former big supremo and former world's greatest worst treasurer paul and wasn't it delightful to hear from him emerged from his working class french clocks and italian suits collections to offer the nation his latest position on the gst Remember, he supported it when the world's greatest worst treasurer and opposed it when Big Supremo, on the principled ground, the caring business class party supported it, a true career politician of New South Wales Socialist Party variety. Well, now... He's gone one better. He opposes it and supports it, prompting the caring business class party to quote the bit where he supports it and the socialist party to quote the bit where he opposes it. But let's make one thing clear. Despite all the headlines about the need to increase it so the rich can be better off, the government has in no way made up its mind. It assures us it's keeping an open mind on the matter. And the socialist party? keeps telling us it opposes it, argues it's regressive and hurts the poor. And we all know the Socialist Party just so cares for the poor. And therefore, any GST at any rate is bad. So why doesn't it promise not just to oppose an increase, but to abolish it altogether? After all, it opposed its introduction in the first place. Surely it doesn't come down to political courage or, or lack of. Oh, no, no, because if it did, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, Little Billy Shorten Ambition, would be out there leading the pack. This hayseed and sheepshit party senator said only the Socialist Party and the lefter than Karl Marx ABC were raising the GST in the talking about it sense. The government never mentioned it apparently, like it doesn't want to smash evil unions, so those daily admonitions in the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review must be an aberration, like Thursday's pleading editorial, but no one has come up with any tax reform alternative that could yield any bigger economic growth dividend. Apparently no one suggested, just to throw something stupid into the conversation, taxing the rich, for instance. Oh no, the, the GST's a way of not taxing them. I keep forgetting, or, or worse, have the rich individuals and corporates actually pay the tax they complain about not paying now? Maybe the capitalist review, the Fairfax boardroom, is just being pragmatic. It, it knows they won't pay whatever the rate is. So it's up to the poor to keep them going, the trickle-up effect. The group manager tax at CSL, Peter Larson, joined the crescendo of screaming from the boardrooms when it was suggested cutting company tax and personal tax on the rich could involve a trade-off where all sorts of corporate welfare was cut. We can't have an approach, Peter spelled out the problem, which gives with one hand and takes with the other. We need to maintain the current sensible, balanced approach, which gives with the one hand and gives with the other. On that uh, big economic guru, Scuttlebem Morlash son said the government would crack down on anyone using their superannuation pool to avoid tax. Super was not designed to give a way to avoid tax. For God's sake, it's not like there's not ample ways to do that. The first letter of CSL stands for Commonwealth, and 
worth remembering as they shuffle their business around the world, nothing to do with tax of course, that before it was privatised to make it more efficient, all its profits went into the public purse. And still on such matters, down in Clive Palmagina country, turns out Clive and the shareholders grabbed the profits when profits are flowing, but when the company hit a brick wall, it turned out it was owned by a shell company with no assets. And Clive and the shareholders had no responsibility for its debts. Don't ask, listener, even Clive said he had no idea either. Well, well... I don't understand it myself, to be honest, were his words, and who could be more honest? But he did understand it had the odd benefit. Not that he didn't show compassion for the workers whose entitlements weren't allowed for before the profits were splashed around or politically donated to himself. After the state and federal government rejected his most generous offer that they throw in $250 million to help the workers, he exploded, direct quote, they don't care about the workforce in Queensland. They are just full of rhetoric and bullshit. Qualities that would abrade poor Clive's sensitivities. How dare the public purse suggest it's not its responsibility to meet his commitments. Not unrelated, the True Blue Aussie Association of that highly respected profession, Financial Advisors, warned that thousands of financial advisors could be forced out of the industry if the government proceeds with plans that they should. Sit down, listener, and please send dear little children out of the room. This is outrageous that they should be qualified. Imagine the disasters that could occur, the association warned, if our members actually had some idea of what they're talking about, of, of the advice they're giving. Good point, it doesn't bear thinking about. The, oops, was that the right button award obviously went to the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, who sent a message that a journalist who wasn't too pleased over a sexist minister with a drinking problem was an effing witch to the effing witch by mistake, showing once again why this segment, along with most of the country I suspect, so admires his capacity in the brain department. The same duffer responded to that High Court decision about sending desperates back to torture by assuring us he would send them back to torture with compassion. Yes, the word compassion dribbled from his lips, although one must wonder how an ex-copper uh, and train killer interprets the word. The High Court again highlighted the great value of the separation of powers by ruling that the government's amendments to make sure the challenge to its torture policy could not possibly succeed had succeeded, that is, the amendments, showing just how invaluable is the separation of powers. Bet there's a few armed robbers and murderers out there, for instance, who wish they could just change the law to make themselves legal. Nothing like retrospective law, law after the facts, so to speak. The Socialist Party injected real compassion into the issue by attacking the government for torturing desperates. The government must find another country for them. It was all heart. Well, right here in True Blue Aussie, for instance. Another country, Afghanistan perhaps, Sri Lanka, Iraq, Myanmar. The important word is another. Its concentration camps raise a wire and sink the boat spokesperson Richard Malls, the refugees, stressed. Uh, and if not Richard, 
then torture with compassion. Big Supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull said true blue Aussie must protect its sovereignty, whatever that meant. But we can bet the Terra Nullius people wish they'd known a thing or two about sovereignty when the first illegal no proper papers boat people invaded the place 228 years ago. On which, if I'm sounding a bit nauseous, I'm still recovering from the inescapable jingoistic coverage of True Blue Aussie Invasion Survival Day. And while I can't speak for them, I wish all our Indigenous brothers and sisters would refuse to participate in the so-called celebrations in any way and give them some credibility. During that period, we had the tennis. A few days of Troubler was his number 430 in the world or something being promoted as a blockbuster we can't miss. Then after a few days, the real players remain. But I raise this because at one point, or between points, I guess, the camera honed in on a high-profile player's feet as he was tying up a shoelace. And I noticed one shoe had left written on it and the other right. Now... I know outside their immediate sporting interests, a lot of sports people, won't include them all, but a lot of sports people aren't all that bright. But I, but I would have thought Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country government announced it would ignore this UN of the US of the UN of the world ruling that the detention of Julian Assange is illegal. This ruling is meaningless. It carries no weight. The UN is irrelevant in this matter, it said. Uh, but, but, but you use the UN to argue your invasion of and ongoing instability in the Middle East uh, as part of the coalition of the killing was legal. For God's sake, are you totally stupid? Legal is legal. That is not the same as illegal. Can't, can't you tell the difference? The week that was apologised for Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country for being so stupid. The difference is clearing, financing the merchants of death on the one hand, exposing its hypocrisy on the other. Finally, back on that tax business and great news, a new ally listener, Gurgle et al. broke no laws, now paying token amounts for PR purposes, won't work funneling profits through tax havens, need strong new laws to pay like the rest of us, our ally wrote. Lord Rupert of Wapping, a conversion on the road to. Perhaps true love has softened his heart. Obviously, he'll now abandon the 23 tax havens around the world where his subsidiaries operate, or he just believes other people should pay tax. His adult progeny's hard hearts must sink every time he comes up with a new mummy for them, especially given that Lord Rupert and Jerry are paying to buy somewhere near a school, which he'll support with his taxes. Good morning. Well, there you go. That's uh, the first of the year from uh, This Is The Week That Was for all those people out there who are having withdrawal symptoms from uh, a lack of Kevin Healy. Uh, there was just an announcement that uh, in the papers that... Uh, uh, yeah, that that may become a um, a, a, a redundant uh, phrase uh, the, in the papers. I was just thinking, but anyway, uh, uh, p- apparently uh, News Corp uh, Murdoch's New- News Corp uh, had a prof- uh, halved their profits apparently this year. So, but he's got broad shoulders <laughs> as he uh, goes around uh, building uh, the agenda and uh, consensus with all his uh, mighty. Uh, tabloid newspapers 
And uh, I know that uh, The Australian doesn't fall into the category of tabloid but uh, or the financial review, but uh, they do kind of um, have some sort of uh, refined uh, uh, covering with a heart of... Uh, tabloid about them. But anyway, moving right along, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie on uh, this uh, fine Saturday, but you might be listening not on uh, digital radio or uh, on 855 AM, but uh, on the radio or on podcast. So disregard the next uh, uh, announcement. I have got a double pass to uh, the uh, screening of uh, The Death of the American Dream which is a conversation with uh, Noam Chomsky. And uh, if you are interested in going to the NOVA on February the 24th at uh, 8.45 to see it, which is an excellent film, 94198377 after the show. As I said, disregard it if you are not listening live. We're going to move on to uh, a, a chat I had with Vince Emanuel. Uh, he uh, is an American commentator. He's a former soldier who is now an activist and uh, he's going to explain to us some of the uh, ins and outs of what's going on in the American presidential race. It's uh, great to uh, have uh, Vince Emanuel here talking to us on Solidarity Breakfast. I know that uh, you were a great friend of Bill Della's, much uh, missed Bill, but uh, we thought we'd go and find one of his special uh, commentators from America to find out more about what's going on in America. And as uh, people will know, there's uh, been um, an incredible events going on in Iowa regarding the uh, Republican and Democrat uh, candidatures for the next uh, presidential race. Can you reflect on what's going on there? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me back. Um, I wish I was in your cozy little studio and maybe even in the center courtyard uh, having a cigarette with Bill right now. Um, of course, the late Bill is not with us anymore. But, you know, it's something I really appreciated about him. And this is going to tie directly into some of the things I would like to say about the presidential election in the United States is that, you know, Bill was always sort of a no I don't know. We call it BS. It was no, there was no BS. There was no sectarianism. I mean, I remember sitting there and talking with him specifically at the time about the different sectarian problems on the left and people not working together and what some organizers and activists call horizontal hostility. And um, I really I just really always appreciated that about Bill. I just wanted to mention that because the why does this tie into the elections? I mean, OK, what's interesting to me is that back in June when Bernie Sanders decided that he was going to run for president. Now, for those who don't know, your listeners, this is a, a, a independent uh, senator from Vermont. He identifies as a democratic socialist, the longest serving independent in the history of U.S. Congress, um, and decided to run as a Democrat. Why? As I'm sure people, particularly your listeners, know, the electoral system in the United States is probably one of the most complex uh, electoral systems in the world, if not the most complex system. So what that does, in short, is to make sure that it is virtually impossible to get anyone elected U.S. president that doesn't fall either the category of a Republican and or a Democrat. Now, we've had independence run in the past. Uh, probably your listeners are most familiar with, say, Ralph Nader's run. In 2000 with the Green Party, you know, that was about as good as it gets 
in the United States for alternative parties. Um, I don't blame him for the election of George W. Bush. I think that's false and people need to realize that. You know, there's been plenty of studies done. The majority of people who showed up for Nader were first time voters who wouldn't have showed up if Nader wasn't on the ticket. Al Gore didn't even win his home state of Tennessee in 2000. You know, you can go on and on with Al Gore's sort of, uh, you know, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, neoliberal economic policies and going after welfare programs and, you know, telling poor black people that they should pull themselves up by the bootstraps and be a little more disciplined and, you know, tune down the rap music and all this just very patronizing white American male bullshit. Um, You know, so not getting too much into that. Okay, so Gore lost. Nader lost uh, in 2000. In the Australian context, uh, the only issue with Ralph Nader's run would be that it would be considered to split the vote, right? But as you're saying, in the end, it probably only uh, made a slight dent on the overall uh, voting pattern, right? Right. I mean, not well. And there's two things we need to keep in mind. Number one, it didn't cause him to lose the election because, as I mentioned, you know, Rutgers University has put out a great study about the 2000 election and they sort of try and put to rest a lot of these falsehoods. And the biggest point they make, of course, is what I had just mentioned, which was that the majority of people who showed up to vote for Nader in the exit polling data said to the pollsters, we would not have been here if it wasn't for Ralph Nader. So it's not as though he split an existing vote. He drew people to the polls that never would have went to the polls anyway if it wouldn't have been for him being on the card as a third-party ticket. Oh, that's interesting Um, in itself. Right, and I think this is something everybody needs to keep in mind because there has been this fallacy now going on 16 years of people believing that Ralph Nader cost Al Gore the election, and it's simply false. Um, and the other thing, you know, the other point of this is it, they stole the election. I mean, well, you know, that's right. they did, didn't they? by all means, there should have been a recount in Florida yeah. under different circumstances. And we know that if George Bush's brother wasn't the governor of the state of Florida and if they didn't have all of their cronies in power positions throughout the state, that they probably would have had a different result to the election to begin with. That's interesting in itself, isn't it, Vince? Because that's a classic uh, conservative tactic of diverting people's attention. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, speaking of which, you know, it's very interesting. Ted Cruz, sort of the e- the representative of the evangelical wing of the Republican Party, I guess was using some pretty, you know, I mean, I don't know. I guess it was illegal. Um, He was telling voters in Iowa during the primaries that Ben Carson, who is the the only African-American candidate for president on the GOP side, uh, Ted Cruz was informing voters in Iowa that Ben Carson was going to drop out of the race. That wasn't true. The evangelical vote in the Republican Party is basically split between those two candidates, Ted Cruz on one side and Ben Carson on the other. So a huge swath of votes that would have went for Ben Carson actually ended up going to Ted Cruz. So, you know, you have these like little tricks that people play during election season. It's not just the Republicans. You know, I should mention that. Well, before you 19- move on from Cruz, I, I, I've got to give you this quote. It's just unbelievable. It's from the uh, front of uh, the Guardian Weekly. It says, Cruz, an ideologically driven pious Texan senator whose grandstanding in the Senate has irritated his colleagues is far more loathed by Republican leaders than Trump. Would that be true? 
I don't know if that's, that's an true. English I, I wouldn't say that he's more loathed than Trump by the Republican establishment. Um, in fact, I would say they're probably quite happy that Cruz, uh, you know, got first place in Iowa as opposed to Trump getting first place. I mean, Trump in some ways is a wild card. I mean, I remember when I was in your country a few months ago, I was telling people that you really have to dig deep into what Trump what Trump symbolizes for a lot of Americans. It's not just the racism and the xenophobia. And yet, yes, that brings over a certain reactionary right-wing lunatic that is going to vote for Trump. What is Trump also saying? Trump is also saying three things that are fundamentally different than any of his Republican counterparts and also fundamentally different from Hillary Clinton. He is saying, number one, the political system in the United States is a total sham. It's a casino. It's an it's a it's a system in which the rich and the corrupt and, and, the, and the cronies, uh, they get away with everything and the average person gets screwed. And even though he's benefited from that, he's telling the average American, you know, playing to the to the sort of darkest sides of our human nature. You know, he's telling the American people, hey, what would you have done if I was in this if you were in my position? But, hey, even though I did this in the past, the bottom line is I'm willing to tell you the system is corrupt. It's corrupt to the bone. And it's not going to work for you. Well, the average American understands that. Not only do they get that, but what is Trump also saying? Trump is also saying, hey, these manufacturing jobs, they've been shipped overseas. Now he blames, uh, you know, uh, inept politicians who allowed these manufacturing jobs to be sent to Mexico or China or Vietnam, etc. You know, there's parts of that. Uh, critique so, that yeah, yeah, but but he diverts the attention from the fact that it was actually caused by the power grouping that he represents, which is money finance. Sure, but he's not, well, he's actually not a finance guy. This is something else that's very interesting. See, a lot of the hedge fund people and a lot of the people who are tied up in credit default swaps and derivatives and commodities trading that's actually not where Trump's money comes from. Trump's money is sort of some of that old money in the U.S. It's like casinos, real estate, property ventures, like that's where Trump's money comes from. The old version of fleecing people, stealing their money. (laughs) Right, but it is different. I mean, there's splits within the 1% that I think are worth pointing out sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, And, you know, I think that's one of them. You know, the reason why every rich person in the United States is not behind Trump is because Trump actually took a pretty big hit in 2008 when the financial markets collapsed, particularly because a big portion of his money and capital and investments are tied up in property. So he wants, yes, he wants to sell, yes, he wants to flip properties, yes, he wants to sell properties for as much profit as possible, but he would also like some level of stability. And something that I think both you and I know, and I'm sure many of your listeners understand, is as we've moved away from the real economy, as we've moved into more of a speculative economy, as we've moved more and more money and more and more resources into the financial sector of the economy, we're going to see and have already experienced more rapid recessions, more rapid economic downturns and less economic growth, particularly for the the least among us. It's a movement away from real value. Oh, exactly. And not only this, but also, Annie, I mean, the other problem with Trump uh, for the other Republicans is that outside of Rand Paul, you know, Trump was the only one who was willing to talk about how the war in Iraq was a disaster and went directly after George Bush and Dick Cheney's administration. And that was from the get go. So it's been very interesting that, yes, okay, it's important. We should point this out. This guy is a racist. 
he's using this xenophobia to garner attention in support of some of the more radical white supremacists in the United States. But he's also pulling, according to a recent New York Times article, close to 20 percent of the union membership in the United States because the union membership is that upset, that, uh, you know, sort of distrust, uh, distrusting of the system. They're getting screwed over. Their wages are being cut. Their hours are being cut. Their jobs are being sent overseas. They can't find meaningful work. And here comes a guy who says, hey, look, both parties have been screwing you. I come in. I don't have to I don't have to take money from anybody. I got my own interests, so you can't corrupt me. And this sounds good to the average American worker who's sitting there going, you know what? I got screwed under Ronald Reagan. I got screwed under Bill Clinton. I got screwed under George W. Bush. And now I'm getting screwed under Barack Obama, who's pushing and wants, uh, you know, wants to implement the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is according to anybody with any kind of sense around the world, probably the worst international trade agreement ever crafted. You know, the, the average guy... So, so how much how much machismo is involved in this? Like the image of Trump is pure machismo. Is there, does that play to the crowd? I think it does. But you know what, Annie? I mean, the other, the interesting part about this is there's another side to this coin and it's Bernie Sanders campaign. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so the two candidates who are drawing the biggest numbers, the two candidates who are, I mean, literally 30, 40, 50,000 people showing up to watch both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump give talks. These are people who are not from the political establishment. Um, you know, traditionally, not Democrats or Republicans or people who have spent years and years in the federal government. And, and this is what's drawing people out. If you look at the Republican race in Iowa, what's most interesting is that the establishment candidates got about, if you take the top five, top six finishers, establishment GOP candidates got about 15 to 25 percent of the vote, depending on who you want to consider a straight line establishment candidate. Non-establishment candidates like Ben Carson, like Rand Paul, like Donald Trump, and like Ted Cruz, they got almost 75% of the primary votes in Iowa. So this will give you an idea of just how dissatisfied not only Democrats are, uh, progressives and liberals in that party, small L liberals in that party, but also uh, right-wing, not only right-wing racists and xenophobes, but right-wing populists and so forth. And even social conservatives who think that we haven't been socially conservative enough in this country. So there's a lot of dissatisfaction, some of it justified, some of it not. But the point I wanted to make about Trump is that I just think from being overseas and from listening to my friends overseas, that there is simply there's too much of a simplistic view of what's happening. It's like, oh, yeah, this guy's a reality TV star and he's just saying these racist things. So this is, of course, why the average dumb American likes him. OK, sure, I'll give you that that's some of his supporters. Maybe it's half of his supporters. But what I'm also saying is that not only anecdotally from running into people and going to events, but also empirically from looking at the data of who's actually supporting this guy. It's a lot of the working class and poor white communities who've been completely left behind by global capitalism. These are communities that are former steel working towns. These are steel mill t- former steel mill towns, former manufacturing towns, former mining towns, places like West Virginia, places like Northwest Indiana, places like Ohio and Michigan. This is where Trump's getting a good portion of his support from the white working class who traditionally 
of course, and who I, I think ideally for us should be aligned with Bernie Sanders campaign. Yeah. And this is this, you know, I think here we have big cultural schisms in the U.S., but I do think that the important thing to point out to people in Australia is that more than 60 percent of the electorate on both the Republican and the Democratic side, if you combine the numbers, somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of voters who are going to show up in November are completely dissatisfied with both parties. So this this allows us big opportunities, I think, if progressives can get you know, get organized enough to be able to not only, uh, you know, conduct meaningful campaigns, direct actions and so on, but also, I think, have a major, major influence in the electoral system in the U.S., something that we've never seen, at least in my lifetime. Well, it's interesting because, of course, this is actually just the uh, campaign to get the particular uh, candidate for the Democrat and the Republican race for the president. So this is just... It's crazy. It goes on for 18 months, Annie. Yeah, that's right. Where does Iowa stand in that... The reason Iowa is an important state is because it is the first primary state. So each state has a primary on different days. Some states, like I think 23 or 24 states, uh, all of those primaries are on the first Tuesday in March. So that's what we call Super Tuesday. Before that... Iowa is the first one. That's already over. New Hampshire happens in a few days. Then it moves from New Hampshire to Nevada, Nevada to South Carolina, and then South Carolina to what I had just mentioned, which is Super Tuesday. So by this time next month, there will be over about, I think, over 25, 26 states that have that will have had voted in the primaries in both the Republican and Democratic races. So by this time next month, we should have a really clear idea at least on the Democratic side, but also on the Republican side of who looks to be the clear front runner. Now, let's go to Bernie Sanders and the Democrats. Uh, Mike Moore just uh, sent a message out to the world saying that a survey of American youth has come back saying that slightly over 50% of youthful Americans consider themselves to be interested in socialism. Is this what's going on with uh, Bernie Sanders? Yes, it's very, I mean, it's, isn't this amazing? I mean, if somebody would have told me 10 years ago uh, that there would be a democratic socialist, openly democratic socialist running for president and, and giving Hillary Clinton a run for her money for the democratic nomination, I think 99 out of 100 progressives in the U.S. would have told you you were crazy. But you know what's happened in the last 10 years? Financial collapse, 2008. What does that lead to? That leads to the largest populist uprising that we've seen in the United States since the 1930s. And that's Occupy Wall Street. So Occupy Wall Street, you have tons of union activity in 2010, 2011, 2012, and also a left-wing reaction to the 2010 uh, electoral victory of the so-called Tea Party on the right wing. So the Tea Party first comes up. This is an astroturf movement. This is a movement that's largely funded by billionaires and largely promoted by major media corporations like Fox News. You know, not much actual community organizing going on. But, you know, they can pump out thousands of people at events because they've got billionaires who are funding these kinds of things. So they just, you know, put everybody out there for big rallies and they run all kinds of congressional campaigns. And, you know, they've been very smart at doing so. But in the meantime, you know, the left and progressives uh, have been building up, I think, uh, a really interesting movement 
addressing all sorts of class warfare. So you have the Fight for 15 movement in the U.S. This is largely being backed by the um, Service Employees International Union, the SEIU, um, but also grassroots activists and community activists. The Fight for 15 movement, many would argue, was birthed from the Occupy movement. So and that's, also ab- that's you- about uh, uh, having a, um, a basic wage. Yes, yes. That is a demand that everyone in the United States, no matter what your job is, should at least be making $15 an hour. Yep. The movement to, to stop the foreclosure of houses, which was a direct result of the 2008 financial collapse. And then, as I mentioned, the Occupy movement and also the unions. Uh, organizing the occupation in Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin, that actually took place prior to the Occupy movement and was in some ways a template for the Occupy movement. I mean, a lot of people forget that no less than a year before Occupy was the great occupation of Madison, Wisconsin, which for me was in some ways even more meaningful than the Occupy protests, where you had over 110,000 people occupy the capital city and the capital building of Madison, Wisconsin, because a right-wing governor was trying to pass anti-union legislation. That's right. Um, of course, he eventually got away with it, which I think maybe brings up other questions. But that aside, I mean, what I'm trying to lay out here is sort of a timeline of events that have then, you know, 2012, you have the incumbent Barack Obama running against a Republican, how it always works uh, in our system. Um, so there wasn't really a chance for any kind of third party to, you know, get going or anyone to organize any kind of opposition. Um, and and then you have someone like Bernie Sanders. And who's Bernie Sanders' constituents? Largely young people, as Michael Moore mentioned. Um, as a matter of fact, 84% of women under the age of 30 voted for Bernie Sanders in Iowa. So that'll tell you something even about a divide within, uh, you know, the female community Uh, progressive community, where older uh, middle-class white women are supporting Hillary Clinton in overwhelming numbers, whereas younger women and also poorer women in the Democratic Party, white women, are supporting Bernie Sanders. Now, you know, one of the interesting divides that also exists there um, is there's a racial divide here. You know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, Bernie supporters are are disproportionately white. So if you look at the polling numbers, you know, and there's all kinds of reasons for this. You know, the majority of black voters right now and the majority of Latino voters support Hillary Clinton. People have argued this, all kinds of reasons for this. Um, Some of the reasons being that the Clintons have had a pretty cozy relationship with a lot of the um, elite sort of political politicos, political operatives, business leaders in the black community, church leaders in the black community. Um, and these individuals hold significant sway in the black community. What about um, Black Lives Matter, that movement? Does that impinge at all on on vote voting um, patterns? I'm, you know, it's interesting that you bring it up, Annie, because for some time, Black Lives Matter was, I think, at the forefront of a lot of people minds, you know, in their actions, what they were doing in the States. Now, it was really tough. I think a lot of pressure was put on that movement, if you want to call it that. Um, You know, I think it's yet, I think we have, maybe I should back up and actually say this. I think part of the problem is, is that we label these things movements before they even get a chance to get off their feet. So with Occupy, you know, immediately people were like, 
oh, well, what did Occupy accomplish? Was it even a movement? There's no chapters. There's no infrastructure being built. Like, you know, there is no such thing as Occupy anymore. I mean, there is in name and, you know, in symbolism and so on, but there is no such like organization or infrastructure that supports something called Occupy. No, but it it definitely created the notion of 99% and the 1%. Yes, and this is the point I'm making about Black Lives Matter. I think we have to wait and see what that movement looks like and what it's capable of doing for the time being. I think what it's done has bring up all kinds of issues, you know, and this is police violence. This is institutional racism. This is the prison industrial complex. This is militarism at home, the militarization of the police forces. You know, these are issues that we weren't talking about. The whole fabric of your society. This is tremendous what they've done. Absolutely. And we've seen that. I mean, now, you know, a good portion of America had a chance to witness this on the live TV, you know, cities like Ferguson and Baltimore, you know, cities that look uh, like something out of a third world nation that's been in a military engagement, you know, on broadcasted live on TV for people to see people who don't go to those areas, I guess. I mean, this is the amazing thing, too, Annie. I mean, if you if you read the New York Times and if you watch PBS News and if you listen to Charlie Rose and the well-respected anchors on the mainstream news outlets in the United States, you're not going to know much. I mean, these people have been asking for the last six months why Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are so popular. They don't get it. Any a lot of these people, they don't travel outside of L.A., Washington, D.C., or New York. And when they're in L.A., Washington, D.C., or New York, they're not hanging out in East Los Angeles. They're not hanging out on the east side of Washington, D.C., and they're not hanging out uh, in Brooklyn or the Bronx And when they're in New York. These people are living sheltered existences. So, I mean, I think it's really important for people in Australia to understand that something very serious is brewing in the United States, that there is a level of anger and discontent that is basically unparalleled in modern times. People are not looking to the 1960s for parallels right now. They're looking to the 1930s. Why? Because in the 1960s in the United States, we were still at the tail end of what is called the golden age of capitalism. You know, 1947 to what some would say maybe 1971. Yep. We were still in that period of extreme growth and people's living wages and, and lifestyles going through the roof, material existences in the United States. That's all that's over with. We've now seen 40 years of austerity. We've now seen 40 years of neoliberalism. And as Chris Hedges mentions, and I completely agree with him, this is a tinderbox, this place. And I mean, I think you're just seeing glimpses of it with the white supremacists and the way they've been behaving and the, and the sort of audacity they have to occupy federal buildings with machine guns and assault rifles and so on. I think you're seeing some of this with the courageous activism with Black Lives Matter and other disaffected youths and people of color who are saying, no more, we cannot take this from this system. You're seeing it from angry white working class people in the form of not only Donald Trump's campaign, but also Bernie Sanders' campaign. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.